we're looking at the last of Mark's story. The last of Mark's story. Now, you'll remember we began looking at verses 10 through 11 and 18 through 21, and we looked at sadness, the sad response that Judas had to Jesus and his sad rejection of him. Then verses 12 through 17 and 22 through 26, we saw the supper. We saw a prepared Savior, a precious symbol in the bread and the juice, a promise spoken, and a powerful song. Then in the last couple of times, we've been in the section we call his seizure, when they came to arrest him in the garden. And we began with his, his time of prayer there. And we looked at John 18, verse 1, and we saw two words of great importance to us, the word garden, and it harkens to the Garden of Eden. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we think of the Garden of Eden where all this mess started, and Jesus would begin dealing with sin where it began, in a garden. And we see that it was located near the brook Cedron, or Kidron, which was a stream that flowed out of Jerusalem and collected the runoff of the blood from the sacrifices of the Passover. In fact, at that point in the year, in the year the, the brook would have been a reddish tint. It was so full of lamb's blood. What began in a garden would be remedied by blood. And that's, that's an awesome picture that the Lord gives us just in the geography of where all of this happens. Then, we talked about, as we're talking about his time in the garden and his ultimate arrest, his seizure, we began by talking about his agony, his agony of spirit and his agony of soul. We talked about his prayer there, that it was isolated, it was persistent, it was honest, and it was intimate. It was informed, submissive, and consistent. His agony of spirit, his agony of soul, and then his agony of body. He suffered physically during that time as well. Now, that catches us up to tonight. And so we begin the second part of his seizure there in the garden. We've moved from his agony to his arrest, to his arrest. Mark 14, beginning in verse number 43. Mark 14 and verse 43. And immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Use your mind's eye with this if you can. I've not been there, but those who have said that the place where he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would have easily seen this group coming. If they had any torches at all, he would have seen them at the gate at Jerusalem. He would have seen them making their way up the hillside. He would have seen them coming long before they got there. Have you ever had to pray distracted? Jesus did. Almost certainly when he went apart to pray, out of the corner of his eye, he saw Judas coming. That would have distracted me. And yet he was so focused on the task at hand. Sometimes we have to pray distracted, don't we? But that's when we most need to get in touch with the Lord. It's something to think about. Um, verse number uh, 44. He, and he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. 
And as soon as he was come, he goes straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled. And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man... Um, and the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. I'm going to go ahead and read there, verse 53, because I really don't want that to be the last verse. <laughs> and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Father, would you help us tonight as we look at this continued story of Jesus and his arrest Would you help us to rightly divide your word of truth and to get exactly from it what we need tonight? Speak to our hearts in an unusual way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. His arrest. We begin, first of all, by looking at the depravity of Judas. Verses 43 through 45 tell us about when Judas committed this final act of betrayal. And I've mentioned before in this series that there's a, there's a kind of a groundswell of this idea that Judas was just a, a poor man caught up in the prophecy and caught up in all of this. Judas wasn't caught up in anything. Judas made a concerted choice to betray Jesus Christ. He demonstrated absolute abject depravity. Why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, we can't know any more than what the Bible tells us, but we can, we can kind of think about it and maybe put together a puzzle. Back in chapter 14, verse 6, when Judas leads the disciples in this course of rebuke for, this, for Mary breaking open this, this box and pouring the ointment on Jesus, what did Jesus do when they complained? I'm almost certain he looked at Judas and he said, let her alone. Probably embarrassed him. Now, is that why he betrayed him? No, but that was probably the last straw. That probably motivated him to go ahead and get busy about it. Because Jesus told him at the supper, what you do, go do quickly. He knew that that's where he was. But more broadly, Judas from the very beginning was a thief. He was consumed with greed. And it was that greed that led him to betray Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 5. In in John's account of this, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This Judas said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. And at some point, Judas Judas realized, Jesus is not going to do what I think he's going to do. He's not going to overthrow the Romans. He's not going to set himself up as what I believe the Messiah should be. And so I don't stand to profit from this financially or otherwise. And therefore, if I'm not going to be able to profit from this the way I want to, then I'm just going to profit from it whatever way I can. In this case, 30 pieces of silver. Judas Iscariot was evil through and through. He was not trapped. He was not deceived. Do you believe Jesus always tells the truth? Listen to what Jesus said about him. 
He's praying in John 17, verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What did Jesus call Judas? He called him a son, actually the son of perdition. What's perdition? Hell. That's not a good guy. When Jesus calls you a son of hell, you're not a good guy. There's only one other person that bears that title. You know who that is? Antichrist. Now, I don't personally believe that Judas is, Antichrist is Judas reincarnated. Some people do, do believe that, that he's brought back. I may be wrong about that. I don't believe it is, but I believe they were of the same spirit, and they're motivated by the same devil. Now, the second question I want to ask, why did he betray Jesus, and how did he do it? He did it by a kiss. Now, in, in, in our culture today, this is, a, this is a good bit foreign to us. Um, you, would, you would think differently of me, if, especially if you're another man, or a lady for that matter. I'm a married man. I walk up and kiss you. you know? Now, there, there are situations in which, you know, the higher-ups and the people in Hollywood and the rich people, they greet one another, oh, mwah, mwah. we don't do that. I haven't kissed anybody in here today except my wife. She's the only one. Maybe my kids. All right? This would be foreign to us, but, but let me give you something that would be less foreign. This was a very traditional Middle Eastern greeting. It still is. But this would be less formal. Or rather, uh, rather more understandable bias. How about a hug? How about a hug? All right. Who wants to be my volunteer? Come here, Foster. <laughs> Just kind of hang out right there, if you will. Good to see you. Don't worry, I'm not going to kiss you. Yeah. Mm. It says that, that Judas kissed Jesus. The word for kiss there, the tensing, is different than normal. Normally it was just a quick, you know, not this one. This was a much more prolonged, um, consequential kind of kiss. And the best way to illustrate it would be this. If I come up to Foster, how you doing, man? Okay, that's pretty commonplace. There's not much to it. Okay, that's most people are fairly comfortable with that. But what if I know Foster's had a rough day? I know things are going on with Foster, and I really want to connect to him. Come here, man. You're right. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. I'm not. This is awkward. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I hold on to it. Now, thank you. You can be seated. What am I doing? What am I doing? I'm expressing something deeper than a common greeting. That's what Judas did. Judas, in his depravity, even as he is betraying Jesus, he is feigning friendship. I'm going to tell you something. That's a depraved man that can do what Judas is doing and still feign that he cares. That's what he did. He held that thing. And he held him close. Now, 
What was Jesus' response? If you use the other Gospels to help you as he's doing this, you know what Jesus says to him? Forthwith he came to Jesus, Matthew 26, 49, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he still called him friend. Did Jesus, did Jesus ever deceive? So what is he saying there? Judas, I'll still be your friend. In spite of everything you're doing right now, I'll still be your friend if you'll let me. And he meant it. Judas wouldn't let him. What a sad, sad thing. Again, just, just for reference sake, why did they have to have any kind of sign at all? Would it not have been enough for Judas to just lead them to where Jesus was so that they could take him without a riot? They could take him without a bunch of people being around. Couldn't Judas just say, they're over there? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, it is dark. And if they had any torches at all, it was probably few because how do you sneak up on somebody when you got a bunch of torches coming, you know? So maybe one or two. Nobody would have caught really one or two torches coming out of Jerusalem, but Jesus knew whose they were, okay? So it had been kind of dark. But number two, I, I, I hold to the belief, I believe Jesus was cousins with John and James, Okay, now think about this. What physical DNA did Jesus have in his body? Did he have a physical father to provide DNA? No, no. So he looked like his heavenly father on that side. Well, what's his heavenly father look like? God is a what? A spirit. So Jesus genetically had to favor who? His mother. And if he favored his mother, and John and James' mother was Mary's sister, and they favored them, it stands to reason they looked a lot like each other. And you combine that with the darkness, it would have been easy to pick the wrong of three. You don't have to go along with that. That's just what I think. So Judas comes and he kisses him feigns friendship, and Jesus calls him friend. How in the world could Jesus do that? The, the total depravity that's on display here. How could Jesus offer friendship to this man? Because Jesus practiced what he preached. And what did he preach in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43? You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor... And hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus never asked anything of us that he doesn't do himself. So did he truly love Judas in that moment? The answer is an unqualified, the answer is an unqualified yes. Yes, he did. As dark as the depravity of Judas is in that garden, equally brilliant is the deity of Jesus. 
the deity of Jesus. Look at verse 46. And they laid their hands on him and took him. Now we're going to pause there between 46 and 47 because this is where you put in another passage. Hold your place here and go to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Verse number 2. John 18, verse 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft time resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches, so there were at least a couple, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon them, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. I want you to notice verse number 5 again. He said, Whom seek ye? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Verse 6, As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. The first evidence of the deity of Christ there in the Garden of Gethsemane is his covenant name. Now, stay with me on this, okay? You're in your King James Bible. This is true of other translations as well, by the way. In verse number 5, Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Do you notice anything different about that word he? It's italicized. Now, what does that mean in the Bible? It means it was added. Now, that doesn't mean that they added to Scripture and did, did something wrong with the Scriptures. No, it means that the King James translators, or other translators for that matter, and other, other works, add things to help it flow evenly in English. You understand that, that no two languages translate seamlessly. The best, best way I know to illustrate that is when I went to Cambodia and I was preaching, and every time I said the word heaven, the, uh, the interpreter kept going and going and going and going and going. And I finally asked him, I said, why do you talk longer than I do, especially when I'm talking about this? He said, we don't have a word for heaven. In our language, Khmer, we don't have a word for heaven. So every time you say heaven, I have to tell them the city and the sky where God lives. So no two languages translate seamlessly. And so the translators, what they would do is they would add words where they had to to make the sentence flow. That's a standard practice. It doesn't do any kind of hurt to the scriptures as long as they're where they ought to be spiritually and grammatically. Okay. Now with that in mind, what did Jesus actually say? Who, who, whom, you, whom, whom seek ye? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. What does he actually say? I am. Amen. And what's it say happen? They fell backwards. Now, again, I've touched on this before. If I'm part of the group there to arrest him, and he says his covenant name, and I hit the ground without meaning to, I'm going to start rethinking what side I'm on. 
But you understand people can be so depraved and so wicked that they can't see plain truth in front of them. All right? You say, well, what, what, what do you mean his covenant name? It goes all the way back to Exodus 3 when Moses asked God in the burning bush, all right, who shall I say sent me? They're going to want to know your name. And what did God tell him? I am that I am. Tell him I am sent you. I love it. I love it when Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders and he's talking about Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. He said, that's bad grammar, but it's mighty good theology. Before Abraham was, I am. He used his covenant name over and over again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Every time you see him say, I am, he's using his name over and over and over and over. This is the first picture of his deity, his covenant name. But then the second thing we see is we see his compassion. Verse 47, back in Mark 14. And one of them, according to John 18, we know that to be Peter. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So a couple things we know about that. First of all, we know it was Peter from John 18. And we're fairly sure that Peter was right-handed. Because if he's left-handed, that's a pretty interesting stroke. Okay. We also know that Peter was apparently not that great with a sword. Because I doubt very seriously he was trying to cut off his ear. All right. We know also from John 18 that the name of this man was Malchus. He was a servant of the high priest Caiaphas. Okay. So he lops his ear off. <laughs> um. We see in Matthew 26 that Jesus reminds Peter that his sword isn't any good. It's kind of reminds us of what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, do we? But against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Hey, Peter, you're using an earthly weapon for a spiritual problem. And we know from Luke 22 that Jesus then heals Malchus. Now, it's unclear. Did he pick up his ear from off the ground and put it back on, or did he grow him a new ear? I don't know, but Jesus could do either. Again, if I'm in that group that's there to arrest Jesus, and I see, number one, I fall backward when he says his name, and number two, he puts a guy's ear back on, I'm going to rethink my side. What shows the deity of Jesus? His covenant name is compassion. And you know what else? His control. At this moment, 
Jesus demonstrated that he was still absolutely 100% in control of this situation. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. Matthew 26, we're going to look at that. Matthew 26, verse 52. Let me give the due credit to the man who gave me this thought. His name is John MacArthur, who gave many preachers many thoughts about many things. I agree with Brother MacArthur on a great many things, and there's a whole lot of pretty pronounced things I don't agree with him on. But I like, I like where he was going here. He's making the point that Jesus was in control. Verse 52, then said Jesus unto him, put again, put again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot pray, now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Peter, don't you know I could stop this any time I wanted? Now, how much was a legion? 6,000 soldiers by Roman accounting. 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions would be 72,000 soldiers. That'd be 72,000 angels. Now, how much power do 72,000 angels bring with them? Well, that depends on how you look at it. If they can just kill one guy, and would you agree that an angel can kill one person if they're sent by God to do it? Yes. That's 72,000 people. I doubt there were 72,000 people gathered in the garden to get Jesus. Okay. In fact, I know there weren't. But he brings up this point, Mr. MacArthur does. In 2 Kings 19.36, Hezekiah has prayed and asked God for deliverance from Sennacherib and the Assyrians. And one angel, now here's, here's where we got to figure it out. It says the angel of the Lord. Usually, Usually, that's a Christophany. That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. But for argument's sake, let's say it's a regular angel that's been sent by the Lord. How many people did one angel kill? 185,000 Assyrians. If this was a regular angel, and if that's the killing power of one angel in general, and you have 72,000 angels come to your defense, how many people can they handle? The answer is 13,328,000,000 people. What's the point? The point is Jesus had the means to put an end to all of it, but he didn't. And he remained completely in control. We see the depravity of Judas. We see the deity of Jesus. I'll tell you what else we see in verses 48 and 49 we see the disregard of justice. Verse 48. Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. This group had no interest whatsoever in justice. They had no interest in arriving at any kind of truth it's, it's obvious their lack of justice is obvious from how they arrested him in the dark under cover of night. He says the prophecy has to be fulfilled. Some people say that just refers to the prophecies in general that Jesus would be, would be killed, but I think probably he's referring specifically 
to a portion of Isaiah 53, 12, which says this, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Watch this. And he was numbered with the transgressors. They treated him like a criminal, the worst kind of criminal. And they completely disregarded justice. So, we see the depravity of Judas, the deity of Jesus, the disregard of justice, and then the desertion by Jesus' followers. Verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. Jesus predicted this back in verse 27, and it happened. Even Peter. Peter who said, I'll go with you to death. Nope. Peter fled just like the rest of them. Now, give him his credit. He did follow Jesus later from afar off. But that resulted in him denying him three times. Now, what's interesting is is Mark, the gospel of Mark, gives us a story nobody else does. I'm almost hesitant to get into it because it's a little bit embarrassing to talk about. And yet here it is. In the inspired word of God. All right? And admittedly, we've got to use a little bit of our sanctified imagination to figure out how this fellow got in this position to begin with. Verse 51. There followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, I would love to tell you that in my study I have found that the word naked there doesn't mean naked, naked. It means, you know, immodestly dressed or in his undergarments or whatever. I can't find anything to support that conclusion. There's no reason to read that anything else than what it says. Okay? So here's what happened. First of all, why is it included in the Gospel of Mark? Most people who do study on this kind of thing have concluded that this was Mark. And this must have been inspired because if I'm Mark, I'm not including this part. I'm leaving that out. I can almost imagine John Mark as he's writing and Peter's filling in some blanks for him and he's writing. And then Peter says, hey, you remember you were there? And yeah, let's just skip that part, okay? Oh, no, you need to leave that in there. Well, I'll pray about it. And then, okay, I got to put it in there. A lot of people believe that the Last Supper took place in the upper room of Mark's home. There's, there's some evidence to suggest that, that Mark's family was fairly well off and that, that, Jesus, um, that Jesus used the upper room for the Last Supper. So what in the world's going on here? Mark's a young man. He's, he's almost certainly too young to be married. Mark is probably taking a bath. Probably. He sees Jesus and the disciples going out towards the garden. Mark is inquisitive. Mark is curious. And so Mark, in a hurry, because he doesn't want to lose sight of them, grabs the closest thing he has, some kind of linen tunic that he throws over and follows them out. Okay? Then all everything falls apart in the garden, and he sees everybody running, and he goes to run, and somebody grabs that, that tunic, grabs that cloth, And he keeps on running and leaves the cloth behind and runs all the way home like that. Poor guy. (laughs) 
Why in the world? Can I just be honest without sounding irreverent? Why is this in here? I don't entirely know. But a guy named Daniel Aiken had a pretty good statement. Listen to what he said. This is not the first time someone's nakedness is revealed when they abandon God in a garden. Mm. That's a good thought. I don't know if that's why it's there, but that's a good thought. So we see his arrest. Now, I'm in a spot. It's 7.46. We usually get out on a Wednesday night around 8.15, 8.20, or by reason of extended days, 8.30. But I've got the next section... I can move through it quickly. I'd like to cover it, but I want to get a read off of y'all. How much can you endure? Oh, you spiritual people, I like it. All right. Then let's look. We've seen sadness. We've seen the supper. We've seen seizure. Let's look at the sham. Now, what do I mean by the sham? I mean, his trial was a sham. His trial was a sham. We're looking at verses 15 through 65 in, uh, in chapter 14. Jesus endured a minimum of six hearings in a matter of just a couple of hours. Now, if you've ever been through anything in the courts, any one hearing about anything is exhausting. You know, if you've ever gone to traffic court and you go once, you just, you're just like, by the end of it, you're just like, oh, give me the death penalty. I don't care. It's just taking so long, you know. Jesus went through six hearings in just a matter of a couple hours. Let me give them to you quickly. He went to Annas' house first. Then he went to the first hearing before the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house. Then he went to the second hearing before the Sanhedrin. Then he went to an initial hearing at Pilate's hall. Then he had a hearing before Herod. And then he was finally condemned before Pilate. That's six hearings. His trial before the Sanhedrin, all three times he met with them, was an absolute sham. It was devoid of any proper Jewish jurisprudence. Even the Mishnah, which is not friendly to Christianity, shows you how badly this was done. And of course, Jesus being perfect, we all know any trial that convicts Jesus is wrong. Okay, So let's look at why it was a sham. Number one, it was a sham because of the timing. Look at verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. They met in the dead of night. They weren't supposed to. They were supposed to meet after the morning sacrifice. It was important that they be right with God and have a clear mind, especially in a capital case. They did not wait till the morning sacrifice. They were not to meet before a Friday that could lead into the Sabbath or before a feast day. In this case, you had a feast day and the high Sabbath. They weren't supposed to meet for two reasons, and they did it anyway. So they're, they're wrong right to start off with in their timing. You know what else? They're wrong in their testimonies. 
First of all, the testimonies that were brought were inaccurate. Look at verse 57. There rose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That is not what Jesus said. What did he say? John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say made with hands. It goes on to say, Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. Not only was it inaccurate, these testimonies, they were inconsistent. Look at verse 59. But neither so did their witness agree together in what court in any situation other than a banana republic do you have two testimonies that don't agree that are accepted as true it's a sham you know what else was a sham the high priest temper verse 60 by the way let me give credit here michael bear the editor of bible doctrines for today our textbook that we use for doctrines in many cases from abeka down in pensacola is a great help in what i'm about to talk to you about Verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, by the way, there were supposed to be two presiding officers. There was only one. That's another one. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Man alive, would to God we could learn that truth, that sometimes the wisest answer is to not answer at all. God help me to learn that. But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. There's that name again. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. What's he saying? You're judging me right now, but I'm coming back to judge you. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need have we of any further witnesses? What am I talking about his temper for? He was obviously partial. He was obviously out of control because he ripped his garments, which is a complete disobedience to the law. Leviticus 21, verse 10. And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. Right then the Sanhedrin should have said, wait a second, you're out of order, sir. This trial is done. But they didn't. You know what else was a sham? The trial itself and the way it was conducted. There was no defense allowed. Judges had previous knowledge of the case. In fact, they had a pretty strong conflict of interest, wouldn't you say? In capital cases, they were required to reconvene in 24 hours and look at it again, favoring mercy. But they didn't. In fact, within this sham trial itself, the charges kept changing. The first charge was sedition, Mark 14, 58. The second charge was blasphemy, Mark 14, 63 to 64. And when they finally got the people to cry out against him, they charged him with treason in Luke 23, 1 and 2. I ask you, which is it? Which is it? I'll tell you, which, whichever one we can make stick. Kind of sounds like politics today, doesn't it? Let's keep impeaching and let's keep charging and let's keep doing all that until we can find one that sticks. And by the way, I mean that for Republicans and Democrats. Quit impeaching each other and do right. Or don't elect them in the beginning. 
Here's an interesting thing about Jewish law. If somebody was found unanimously guilty, and in verse 64 it says, uh, and they all condemned him to be guilty of death. If somebody's found to be unanimously guilty, in Jewish law it was considered an acquittal because it was thought to be lacking in mercy. If something was unanimous, they just assumed the fix was in, kind of like some Baptist churches. Thankfully not this one, but I've been in some that are like this. You have to assume that this unanimous verdict came with two of the members of the Sanhedrin missing. I cannot imagine Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus voting for Jesus to be condemned. And then finally, the last thing that tells us this trial was a sham was his treatment. The Jews were not savages, but they were savage on Jesus. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him to cover his face and to buffet him and to say unto him, prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. All of these things tell us, all of these things tell us that this trial was an absolute sham. And anyone that convicts the lovely Lord Jesus would have to be, would have to be. Next week, with the Lord's help, we'll talk about Peter's shame. Peter's shame. Thank you for bearing with me. That keeps me on track, helps me gain back some time from MBT last week. So, uh, so we can now still plan to finish this by the end of the summer. Because wouldn't you like to start something new beginning of fall? I would. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about Peter's shame next week. Okay? Lord willing. I better say that. Lord willing. Because I found out just recently, sometimes the Lord makes me change things.